Hello. Can you hear me? Uh, yeah, I hear you, Mike. You uh, have to unmute. Um, I'm not. A, I'm muted okay, right now. Hold on one second. No, no, you're you're good. Hold on one second. Okay. Okay. All right, we're good. Now the. Colin has this funny thing where you're supposed to be able to have a little private session before starting with uh -huh. the guest or whatever, but somehow a few people always manage to sneak in. So this is not a fully private session, just so you know. Okay. Um, we can just start and not even BS. Okay. Do you want yeah, to share yeah, no, this you could Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Alright. Uh, tweet it out. Okay, then let's just uh, dive in. I'm going to make it public. What's this? Uh, right. Why is this thing better than? Uh... Um. Well, uh, Colin. Hello, everybody. I just made the chat public, the room public. Uh, Colin allows you to save the audio file immediately. And it kind of functions as a, as a podcast once it's recorded. So it's not like just a transient room, you know. It, um, it's gotcha. accessible later. And then you do, there's this function where you take, quote-unquote, calls from people who are now, you know, the ones filing in. Um, yeah. So, all right. So hello, everybody. That. Um, is, that why, is that why we're not just doing Clubhouse? Yeah, you know, I think, uh, I don't know. There's been a migration to call in for a variety of reasons. And I've... Answer the call. Answer the call. Okay. Call in. Um, yeah, uh, it's pretty self-explanatory. Anyway, uh, hello everybody. Um, with uh, Richard Hanania here, uh, I'm actually sitting in a park in London right now. It's a lovely day, but it might mean that there's some background noise. Uh, so forgive me for that. Um, but the background noise would probably be pretty pleasant. Like there are dogs barking and children playing and stuff so it hopefully won't be like some sort of murderous screech anyway um so uh richard i i guess um i don't think you need to be introduced all that much but uh you can introduce yourself if you want otherwise we could just we could just jump in i'm sort of curious um for your just sort of breakdown summary of the uh, rationality of current u.s foreign policy because it seems like I'm pulling my hair out most days because the sort of rule of thumb that I've come up with, and it seems to be borne out, you know, with each passing week, is that not a day goes by that the U.S. doesn't do something to escalate this war in Ukraine, right? Um, whether it's rhetorically with Biden last week calling Putin a war criminal or uh, that he's committing genocide, or it's militarily with new uh, higher and higher grades of weaponry being shipped or there's uh, some development with like the intensity of the intelligence sharing operation that's happening where apparently now u.s intel is 
aiding uh, Ukraine in its conduct of offensive combat operations. Not that there was any real distinction previously between offensive and defensive operations. I mean, it's kind of like an incoherent concept or an incoherent distinction. Uh, but now they're just overt in that they're providing intel intel for real-time offensive combat operations. And there have been Ukrainian uh, operations that have been re- confirmed, with one of which was just confirmed last night by the New York Times, where they're actually attacking inside Russian territory. Um there's a report that uh, Biden is doing yet another tranche of weaponry shipments this week, um, where you know the the grade is going to increase again. Um, so, and how do you sort of summarize what <laughs> U.S. foreign policy is right now? Like, what's the policy goal? Um, I, I know a lot of people don't like to take Biden as work. So they think that he's just this senile, empty vessel or something. But you know, when Biden goes before a massive massive international stage and declares that his intention is to see to it that there's regime change in Russia, I mean, I tend to not have much reason to doubt his sincerity in that. Um, so that's basically my working understanding of what U.S. foreign policy is, which would explain why they've consistently undercut any attempt at achieving some sort of diplomatic resolution, um, which is why they're you know, incrementally intensifying the nature of the U.S. war commitment, uh, and on and on and on. We can get into more details, but I'm, I'm wondering yeah. if that tracks with your impression at this point. Yeah. Well, I wrote a book um, basically saying that American foreign policy wasn't based on any kind of logical strategy. It was based mostly on uh, special interests and short-term political interests of politicians. And I think that framework for understanding what's going on here uh, works pretty well. Uh, so I think uh, what Biden is doing um, and what the administration is doing makes sense in, sh- in terms of short-term politics. You don't want Russia to uh, look like it's winning, right? It's, it's not about, you know, saving Ukraine from, like, as much damage as possible, right? Ukraine suffering, um, you know, Ukraine suffering, people fleeing as refugees, the country's economy being destroyed, that doesn't really hurt Biden. Uh, what hurts Biden politically is Putin, quote unquote, winning, right? Uh, so if you uh, if you take a policy that increases the suffering for the Ukrainian people, you want to increase the suffering for the Russian people. Now they're open that you know there's the the Russian people themselves uh, have to have to be hurt, um, and it hurts uh, Putin. You know, you know, doesn't even have to like actually hurt Putin and as far as uh, remove his grip on power or, you know, uh, lower his uh, standing within Russia because this stuff is actually making him a pop more popular. If anything, it just has to be he can't have military uh, victories. He can't basically get over Ukraine. So, the, you know, they're, they're, they're doing what makes sense. They're, fun- they're funneling in weapons. Um, and the question is, you know, what would a rational policy look like? And the question is, what, where does this, where, where what's the end game of this? So there's going to be a, an offensive in the, in the east of Ukraine. Um, it might go well for Russia or, you know, Ukraine might fight it off. Um, and say best case scenario for what the U.S. is supposedly trying to do. Uh, let's say that uh, uh, Ukraine, you know, just sort of holds the line right now. Uh, Ukraine is, um, you know, they're, they're, they're uh, uh, their stated goal is to take back uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, all of it. Uh, so there's millions of people um, uh, between those two regions, and then Crimea too, which is you know uh, co- which is considered part of Russia now. Uh, so Ukraine Ukraine will take those weapons and you know go on the offensive if they can. Um, and so that doesn't that doesn't end the conflict. Basically, it's going to require uh, the kind of mass humanitarian suffering that we saw uh, when uh, uh, back when. Um, 
uh, Russia was, you know, bombard still bombarding cities, but Russia, when Russia was basically surrounding and cutting off, uh, and, uh, um, and uh, putting countries, putting cities under siege, Ukraine is, you know, the goal is to do the same thing. And so that, that's what, uh, that's what American, uh, uh, successful American policy looked like. And also, you know, it's a dragged out war, which is bad for Ukraine. There was just, now we just passed 5 million refugees. Uh, so something like 15% of the population, uh, has left much more higher percentage of the population. If you're just looking at the, uh, uh, the parts that are still under Ukrainian control. So you're looking at something like 20, 25% of the country is either under Russian control or that's left. I think a lot of those refugees probably uh, won't come back. Um, and so Zelensky says, you know, we're going to fight this for 10 years. You know, you lost 15% of your country and uh, uh, just left within two months. You know, what do you, what do you think is going to be left in, in, in 10 years? Uh, so I don't, you know, Ukraine, a Ukraine mil- even a Ukraine military victory here uh, is just going to continue the war. I mean, to be fair, if a Russia victory, a Russian victory would probably continue the war too, because, uh, you know, if Ukraine doesn't, uh, you know, accept the Russian gain, um, then Russia has every incentive to um, to just you know to, to fight to fight Ukraine off, right? To keep uh, to keep um, gaining territory, if anything else, just for defensive reasons, because you know they, we want the border to be as far west as possible. Uh, so it's um, it's you know it, 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 I'm very you know pessimistic about ending this thing. I mean, I think this is going to go on probably for a very long time. Uh, it's going to be bad for Russia. It's going to be bad for the American economy. It's going to be worst of all for uh, Ukraine. But that's where the policy seems to be headed. Another thing that occurred to me that I wanted to run past you is how certain cliches develop about the supposed tactical progression of the war. So now it seems like it's conventional wisdom that Russia was, quote, defeated in the first phase of the war, and now they're regrouping and they could win or lose in this next offensive in the eastern portion of Ukraine, right? So let me just tend you or give you what um, the New York Times put in one of its newsletters today, which is, uh, here's what it wrote, just as a matter of factual declaration, right? Quote, Ukraine has defeated Russia in the first phase of the war, and the second phase has begun, and the headline is, can Ukraine keep winning? Now, when people say this, or say things along these lines, I don't know what they're referring to. It seems like it's just their own conjecture, or they're like reacting to something called expectations that just sort of magically coalesces in the ether, and if expectations are met or not met, then that means they're able to understand like what the tactical aims of Russia were. Um, my understanding is that uh, well, if, you actually, if you at least listen to what Putin said, and I, I don't take everything he says at face value, obviously, because we're a warring party, but nonetheless, in his initial speech launching the invasion, he said that the intention of Russia is not to occupy the whole of Ukraine. And now, and the may have to lie, I don't know. But I, I also all don't know what the metric is that leads so many people to just decree that because Russia you know, withdrew portions of its forces from around Kiev, that means that they've been, quote, defeated. And maybe they have been defeated. Maybe that didn't go, that phase of the war didn't go according to plan. That wouldn't surprise me. I just don't know what on what they're basing this certainty. Right? It just seems like a lot of pundit musing to me that somehow congeals into this unshakable received wisdom. And I, I have to be kind of intrinsically doubtful about the legitimacy of that wisdom. 
Yeah, so I think what they're doing here is what they're often doing, which is uh, relying on intelligence sources, which they, you know, they treat as sort of gospel and they, you know, American intelligence sources, and they say, you know, whatever they're saying uh, is probably true. They trust their sort of wisdom and, and honesty. Um, I don't think this narrative, though, is uh, that far off. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people didn't think that, um, you, you know, Ukraine would hold up. You know, if you're Putin and you you uh, go and you surround uh, Kiev, I mean, you think that there's, you know, I think you, you think there's a chance that it collapses, right? Like, what if it, what if Ukraine did collapse like a lot of people were expecting? Um, you know, wouldn't wouldn't they have, like, installed a new government? Yeah, I think they they absolutely would have. So I don't think it's, I don't think the, uh, you know, I think that, yeah, I, I, I do think that the expectations are a real thing. And I do think that, you know, a lot of observers, I saw very few observers who thought uh, Russia couldn't uh, take, um, uh, you know, that Russia couldn't take Kiev and couldn't take the major cities of the, of the country. Now, is Russia defeated? I mean, like, you know, I mean, maybe compared to expectations, but in the sense that Russia is occupying a lot of territory in Ukraine and things are working out terribly for Ukraine, then no, Russia is, is, is not defeated. I mean, Ukraine is still, even in the best case scenario, fighting off Russia, suffer, suffering, you know, the brunt of this war. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I think if you if you are Putin, I mean, I think you just, you at least take the chance that, you know, I think you, they wanted regime change. I mean, unquestionably, whether they wanted like uh, Anatoly Carlin thinks, you know, they were going to go for annexation of the whole thing. And he still basically thinks this. I, I check in with him every once in a while and I say, uh, do you know, are you, uh, you know, do you, are you, do you still think they're going to go for it all? And, you know, he just, he just doesn't budge. And, you know, he's been right about a lot of things. So I I, uh, I tend to I tend to trust him, um, but yeah, I think you know there definitely was at least a goal for regime change. I think that's uh, clear. Um, they didn't you know they didn't accomplish it, um, and you know I think it makes sense to say that the Russian uh, uh, you know the first phase of the war the objectives failed. Um, that doesn't mean that you know Ukraine is winning or Ukraine is doing well or this is good for Ukraine or or anything like that. It just means that the war is pro- prolonged and that you know it's a terrible situation for all involved. Yeah, I, I know. I guess just when I hear this blase attribution to Putin of certain quote-unquote calculations, and then people come away with this firm conclusion that he miscalculated. Well, okay, maybe he did. But how do you, can you explain how you know what his calculation was? It's like this this weird, like, quasi I don't know, psychoanalysis combined with some sort of psychic psychic medium thing that they have going on with Putin where they know his deep deep, deep dark uh, intentions. And it just seems like, I, I don't know how what the base, the factual basis on which people are going from half the time. And so a lot of it just seems like aimless conjecture. I mean, who cares what U.S. pundits, quote, expectations were? Is that like some holy writ? I mean, I, I don't know. It's just, it's just odd. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think in general, the way we frame these things, you know, whenever you read about Putin or whenever, whenever you read about Eddie Foreman, uh, uh, foreign government or foreign leader who is supposedly quote unquote an enemy, you know, they'll, you know, they, they will, they will talk about their motivations. Well, first of all, they'll assume their motivations. They'll assume they know. And then they'll assume that they're just, you know, selfish. Like, oh, Putin wants to, you know, it's not like Putin is morally outraged because of what's happening in the Donbass. Uh, Putin is morally outraged because of like the children being, you know, uh, children being killed in Donetsk or, you know, the rights of the Russian speakers being violated. Like, you know, that's never, it's never like that. It can never be like a, uh, uh, it can 
can never be like an idealistic or uh, motive. It's just like he's irrational. He just doesn't think Ukraine exists or he's like evil and scheming and trying to hold on to power. And like, you know, maybe like, you know, it's probably a combination of all these things. But yeah, when we're analyzing, you know, Putin or Kim or Assad, whenever we refer to government as like one man, uh, that's usually we assume that we know that we know what's in the man's soul and it's evil. And, you know, we can just report that in the newspapers like it's news. And then when, and then when we talk about America and we talk about the U.S. government, um, it's always, you know, there, you know, it's all the, the assumptions are never so cynical. It's always, you know, there's a goal, you know, the Pentagon wants this or you know, America wants this. And it's always, you know, they take this stuff about rules based international uh, or rules based international order seriously. And they don't ask questions like, you know, why does the U.S. Uh, uh, you know, bomb and overthrow more countries than everyone else in the world to put together. I mean, so if another country, you know, was invading uh, as many countries as we were and then saying they were uh, upholding the rule-based international order, we would treat it like, you know, Pravda. We would treat it like Russia. we talk about Russia today or some kind of uh, propaganda. Um, so it's um, the... Uh, you know, yeah, I, there's all kinds of dysfunctions in how foreign policy is covered, and I think you hit on you. Th- I think you hit on one right there. Uh, now, in this case, you know, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm comfortable saying that Putin probably did want at least regime change. Um, but you're right. In general, you know, it's a, it's usually bad practice to assume we know his motivations. Sorry to interrupt. Wasn't there also? like a partial consensus that the number of troops that were sent at least to the Kiev region were not sufficient to actually topple the government and you know didn't the russian forces not actually make a full on advance toward kiev i know they were on the the kiev i know they were on the perimeter and so I keep going interchangeably between Kev and Keep, so I'm not sure what the correct or permissible pronunciation yeah, is anymore. One, 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 is spelling. Um, one is not, and I forget which is which. Yeah. yeah, well, apparently the New York Times was politically incorrect until October or November of 2019 when they officially changed their style guide during the first Trump impeachment. So apparently it was, it was like an anti-Trump semantic uh-huh. change that they did. Um because that you know that first impeachment was centered around shipments of javelin missiles to Ukraine, Ukraine, right? That Trump supposedly froze, but he didn't really because they never missed a shipment. Anyway, another story. Uh, but you know, I thought my my understanding was when I would look at some of these uh, analysts who I, I might be disposed dispositionally, uh, I might be disposed to have a bit of a skeptical take on the accuracy of these analysts who work at think tanks. Their sort of prognostications, right? But they, they were at least generally speaking correct that there would be an invasion, right? So I acknowledge that. But this guy, for example, this guy Michael Kaufman, I'm sure you probably have seen his stuff. Um, sure. He was uh, my 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 impression from what he was saying was that the the number of troops was that Russia was sending, while large enough to you know organize some sort of invading force, was not going not large enough to actually occupy a major urban center like. Uh, Kiev. So, like, what? How do we know that the intent was to capture Kiev and, and overthrow the government? I mean, or maybe like they they did. It, it did occur to me that it, it seemed like the objective was regime change. Maybe there was some other tact that they were pursuing to achieve regime change. Ultimately, I mean, I, I don't know. The point is, there's. I, I just. And it's sort of inherently distrustful of the overconfidence and certainty that really just seems like a lot of projection on the part of pundits in the quote West who, on the one hand, like absolutely loathe Russia, right? So they want to have they have this incentive, you know, rightly or wrongly, to 
portray Russia in the worst possible light and to make them out to have the most, uh, to, to paint them as maximum failures, right? And uh, I don't know, I just, uh, I, I don't, I don't, don't trust it. I mean, I, I need to see hard evidence in, in, in general before I make any, um, you know, official conclusions about anything. Yeah, I think that, you know, I think that, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I take your point in that I think the, uh, the narrative is not uh, really ridiculous in this case. I mean, the, uh, whether they tried to take uh, uh, Kiev, um, you know, they were, they, they did send tanks basically down the main road and they were, uh, they were, you know, they were, they were pretty close. I forget the exact details of this. And then, you know, the tanks got blown up. I, you know, I, I doubt that this was part of uh, Putin's plan. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, the casualties, we have no idea what the casualties are, but, you know, the, the Russian uh, government admits is in the thousands, the Ukrainians say something like 20,000, which is, you know, probably too high, uh, the number of deaths. Uh, do they say 20,000 deaths or just 20,000? You know, it, I think it's, I think it's actually like 20,000. Something like that. Yeah. 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 And, and so, you know, it's probably, it's probably, that's probably an exaggeration. And, you know, we don't talk about Ukrainian deaths or, or casualties at all. I mean, it's amazing how we don't even ask the question, you know, not even in the articles to say like, oh, you know, this is an estimate or, or you know, we're going to make something up or no, it's, it's just, it's just, uh, it's just, you know, not, it's just sort of treated as irrelevant information or something you shouldn't wor- wonder about. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the, the you know the costs have been high to Russia. You know, I think you I think you take at least the chance. You never know whether a country's going to collapse when you invade them, right? I think a lot of people did believe you know Ukraine was sort of you know just a fake country. Uh, the the um, you know the the people think that there was a uh, sort of a moment of opportunity in, in 2014 where Russia could invade and basically the you know the government was basically just melting away. We saw the Afghanistan, the end of the Afghanistan war, uh, where the government melted right, and then the Taliban uh, took over. Over. Um, so it, it's hard for me to believe that Putin wouldn't think like, hey, you know, there's like a, you know, 30 percent chance or 50 percent chance, at least the government collapses. And then, you know, everything is everything is easy. You know, like he you know, he, he couldn't have known that it wasn't going to collapse. Right. He couldn't have known that the resistance was going to be uh, this strong. So I think it's you know, I think it's realistic to think that now to think that that's like his only you know, that's all he was doing. And he wasn't you know, he didn't have a backup plan or anything like that. Um, I think that's probably uh naive um but i think you're right i think yeah you know that's that, that's all that's all plausible that's all yeah. i just want to say that's all plausible to me i just wish more people would be honest and admit that what they're engaging in is this like mind reading conjecture exercise rather than stating as though it's like established yeah, fact I think there's too much that of they know right. what the, the plan was I, I think that's unquestionably true. And look, even if, you know, the narrative was baked in beforehand. Look, even if, uh, even if Kiev fall, fell and like, you know, they were sort of prepping for this psychologically, like they were saying that this is probably what was going to happen. The narrative would still be that it didn't go to Putin's plan. As long as there was any resistance, as long as there was, you know, sanctions, you know, Putin could have annexed, you know, half the country and not, you know, suffered a lot of casualties. And the narrative would have still been, you know, it's not working out for them because that was the narrative. The narrative can't be like, you know, the U.S. is just, uh, uh, you know, the U.S. is just losing and making bad decisions. The narrative has to be, you know, they hate Putin. He's, he's the person that they hate more than anyone else in the world. Russia is the country they hate more than anything else. And so the narrative that Russia is going to fail and it's going to do poorly um, is sort of baked in. And I think that you're right that there is so much energy 
um, that goes into propping up the narrative. If you read any New York Times story and any Washington Post story um, on the war, you watch us, you know, CNN segment or anything like that. Um, it's like 50, you know, 60 percent is like propping up the narrative and like 30 and 40, 40 percent is like factual information, you know, at best. Um, and so, you know, you really have to sift through a lot. You just have to like, you know, if you want information on the war, you just have to keep, you know, sort of being brainwashed by the same narrative uh, over and over again. And it takes a lot to, you know, become informed about the conflict and at the same time, not just, you know, not just have it, just have your views shaped by what the narrative uh, is. Um, so, uh, yeah, I wish there was less of this mind reading, less of this sort of narrative construction and more just sort of, you know, facts about what's going on. And then that would like, you know, we would focus on like important stuff like the risk of nuclear war. Like what are the humanitarian conditions in Ukraine? Is this actually good for Ukraine? What would a settlement look like? We have so little room to discuss that because so much is just about, you know, putting flags on bios. And, uh, you know, building the narrative of, you know, Putin is bad and Ukraine is, you know, brave. I, I think you're right. There's a, there's a huge cost to that. And also, this is this is taking place in the context of what the U.S. government flatly admits is an information warfare campaign. Right. Yeah. They're how not trying to hide. That, that 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 they're using the media explicitly as a prong of this outward information warfare campaign. It's been openly stated, like this actually isn't conjecture. Like this is <laughs> publicly announced in black and white for anybody to see in the New York Times or on NBC News or whatever, right? So that's what the U.S. government is engaging in, and they're using the media to do it. Like they're laundering their information warfare tactics through the media. Um, and, you know, so it's not just a matter of like narrative construction in a typical sense where, of course, you know, the media has some like vested interest in propagating a certain version of events or they have some ideological commitments or they even got party, partisan attachment, right? No, it's an actual <laughs> information warfare initiative on behalf of one of the warring parties. And there was, I don't know if you saw the CNN story published last night, but it was a pretty incredible. I actually credit CNN for getting these quotes because I, I wouldn't have expected it. But they quoted, of course, it was an anonymous uh, official of some kind, but they were pretty explicit, this official that was quoted, meaning, I mean, um, when they said that, you know, look, every Zelensky interview, of which there are constant examples, right? I mean, every day there's a new Zelensky interview where he's giving an exclusive to CNN or something, right, um, from his bunker. Every CNN, every Zelensky interview, every demand that's made by a Ukrainian government official, um, yet throw in these journal, these quasi journalists who are like backed by various U.S. government entities operating in Ukraine, you know, giving supposedly objective updates on the status of the war. What this anonymous official said in the CNN article, article is that this is all part of the information warfare campaign, which like is trivially obvious. Uh, but is lost on a lot of people who are just very credulous, like eagerly credulous in their regurgitation of whatever information is being put out there that is favorable to the Ukrainian side. And actually another amazing ambition that was admirably candid for CNN to include in this article was that you know, despite the operational co cooperation that the U.S. national security apparatus and the U.S. military kind of uh, branches have with Ukraine, they, they don't know where the weapons are going. I mean, we're, we're sending you know, millions of dollars per week, hundreds of millions of dollars per week, rather, of weaponry into Ukraine. Um, and they have no visibility, at least according to these sources that talk to CNN, into where the weapons are going.
and these are, you know, missile systems, right? And now they're, they're sending, you know, high-powered artillery and on and on and on. Biden last week announced attack helicopters were going to Ukraine. They just have no ability to monitor the chain of custody. You know, I, that would be my inference anyway, but now it's been admitted in CNN. And um, also they admitted in this same article, which again, I, I, I recommend people actually go read. I wouldn't do that often for a CNN article, but it was very illuminating. Uh, they admitted that they don't know what the casualty counts of the uh, Ukrainian side is. Now, they have so much, so they're, they're sharing intel in real time with the Ukrainian, the Ukrainian military to wage war against Russia, but they don't know what the casualty count is, or they have no, like, even theories? I don't know. It's uh, Part of me thinks that it's, uh, it continues to be part and parcel with the uh, information warfare that's uh, clearly well underway. Yeah. I didn't see the CNN article, but I did see there was some uh, clip going around Twitter. It was like uh, ABC or NBC, one of the networks or CBS. They were um, basically yeah, admitting that uh, you know they they basically use the media for information warfare. And it's sort of very meta because the media understands it's being used for these purposes. And you know, to be frank, they're they're in on it and they're happy with the role. And you know, the audience the audience likes it and they you know they 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 uh, they benefit from it and the government benefits for it. So so it's a sort of a symbiotic relationship where everyone get something and it, it makes uh it makes sense um yeah the you know the, the you know about the ukrainian casualties it's interesting there's this uh website called um uh understanding war uh so it's an uh, institute for the study of war so they have like these famous maps they have these daily updates uh for what's going on in the war um and you look at the footnotes and you know they admit this sometimes in the you know usually in the text too you know according to the ukrainian military like this 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 and it's like you know literally half their sources are the ukrainian military or or more and they're just passing it along as fact and then sometimes yeah, that's the neocon say, think tank, right? I mean, that was that that was um, yeah, was it Robert Kagan's sister who founded it. Yeah. Well, K- Kagan writes these updates. I don't know if he writes all of them, but he he writes at least some of them. Um, so Kagan is yeah, Kagan himself is writing these things. Um, and then you know they'll say the Ukrainian military says X Y Z, and you know I read it because you know it's worth you know reading you know what the Ukrainian military says, but that's you know that's all I'm taking from it. And then sometimes it'll say you know the Russian you know uh, Ministry of Defense says X, and you know we have no way to independently confirm that right it's, it's always it's always has that disclaimer whenever they use russian information um and which they usually uh don't so yeah you know, like the ukrainian you know the casualties they'll, they'll take they'll just take the numbers from the ukrainians and they'll say the russian uh uh, you know, casualties are this. You could, you know, Russia has, you know, has really some, you know, talked about some numbers about Ukrainian casualties. You know, that's not considered credible. Even when Zelensky gets caught, you know, or the Ukrainian government caught, gets caught lying, uh, like about the uh, the nuclear power plant in the south, you know, about a month ago. Um, there's there's no consequences for it. It's just, you know, what you know, it's just we just shrug it off and we don't see it as like having any relevance for their credibility. Um, but then Russians, you know, are always liars until. Uh, um, until proven otherwise. Um, so yeah, on the, on the, um, on the weapons, not knowing, you know, whose hands they end up in. I mean, this is why it's still worth reading the media, despite so much of it being narrative construction, because they, you know, the information is all there during the Syrian, uh, uh, when we were interfering in the Syrian civil war, still, you know, interfering in the Syrian civil war, but I'm talking of, you know, back around, uh, uh, 2012, um, when it was, you know, the, the, our, uh, when we were just getting started, um, all the information was there. You could read the newspapers. I mean, you could see how crazy this was, you know, and then you look at like uh, Ben Rhodes's like um, uh, memoirs and like Obama's memoirs, and you know they admit it. It's no secret that we were just funneling all these weapons 
um, into Syria and nobody knew where they were going, but, you know, we just sort of felt like we had to do something. Um, and that's the, you know, the exact same thing is happening in Ukraine. And like, there's not, you know, even if it like, you know, the Russians leave, there's like no guarantee that this does not become like, you know, in Afghanistan or Syria, you know, you just have, you have a, a weak government, you have these, you know, right-wing militias, um, you still have people who are going to be pro-Russian and, you know, all those people uh, in Donetsk and Lugansk are not going to, are not going to, you know, disappear and melt away. They have, you know, they have their own ideology and they've been used to self-rule uh, for eight years. Uh, so this thing is go. this thing could be a mess, even if the, um, uh, the Russians leave. And just because it's Europe, doesn't mean becoming, you know, uh, you know, a failed state like, you know, Afghanistan or Syria, you know, is impossible. I mean, that that could happen. And, you know, there's there's not enough, you know, thought as to like how not to have like it's much easier to break countries than put them back together. I mean, if we've learned anything from the Middle Eastern interventions uh, in the last decade. It's, you know, very easy to come up with a vision where the people you're supporting are, you know, the true Democrats and they're going to take power and everything's going to be, you know, wonderful. And, you know, and when that doesn't work. There's never like a clear roadmap to like, okay, how how does this like become a functioning country again? Often it just never does. And the the, the emotional intensity with which the U.S. media, anyway, and other Western media uh, entities are uh, invested in the cause, so-called, of Ukraine, means that they're off. They often angrily refuse to concede that the information pumped out by Ukrainian government officials is actually propaganda. They think that to label it propaganda is inherently pejorative or it's inherently antagonistic toward the righteous cause of Ukraine. And, you know, yeah, it's probably true that the term propaganda doesn't have the nicest of connotations, but still, if a warring party is putting out information into the public domain, including to foreign countries, uh, you can pretty well infer that it's all intended to advance its interests, which can kind of is the definition of propaganda, and yet if you put it that way, people will get extremely upset, as I can attest. Like, I'm in London right now, and a few days ago, um, I was in the, a train station, and I, I posted these photos on Twitter, and of course, people had a meltdown. But, you know, I, I'm just kind of strolling into a train station one afternoon, and every digital billboard surrounding the entire station is lit up in these yellow and blue colors, and the message in, like, this, you know, semi-Cyrillic, uh, you know, English text is, uh, be brave like Ukraine. And I looked into it, and of course, this is a PR campaign actually orchestrated by the Ukrainian government, by including Zelensky's, uh, office, right? And they're, they're, they're placing these billboards in some of the most expensive advertising real estate in the, in the world, like you know, central London, they have it in Times Square now. And these are all the country, all countries that they're simultaneously lobbying to intensify the weapons shipments, right? So it's like the quintessence of propaganda. And yet if you even say that, uh, people take extreme offense, again, because they're so heavily invested in Ukraine as the righteous party here, and I'm not even necessarily disputing that it's legitimate uh, to call Ukraine the righteous party. Although we could have that, that discussion, uh, just saying that, like, even if you do believe it's the righteous party, it shouldn't blind you to acknowledge that they're engaging in propaganda, right? And and that seems to be uh, continuously blinding U.S. media and their coverage of the war. Yeah, you know, I, with this one, another one of the themes of my book was that. Um, yeah, the, often that 
uh, countries or factions that are party to a foreign conflict, they often, you know, have the have access to um, uh, to the you know to the levers of sort of public relations, public relations manipulation uh, in the in the West, or particularly you know the United States, which which I was uh, uh, focused on. Um, and usually, it's on a smaller scale than this. You know, it's like most people; it's you know below the level of what most people you know pay attention to. So it's like funding a think tank, you know, testifying before uh, Congress, like becoming buddies with like the neocons and like the uh, and the you know the, the journalists, uh, like you know, like Ahmed Shalabi did before the uh, Iraq War. Um, you you know, this is this is this is sort of norm. Now it's usually you know sort of small scale, so you can influence. Um, you could influence policy, you know, far away from what most people are paying attention to. This is a different scale. This is like foreign policy becoming a current thing, which doesn't happen uh, that often. Probably hasn't happened since, uh, you know, hasn't been the main foreign policy. Really hasn't been the main story. Maybe since you know, since uh, since nine eleven or Iraq, or the, the beginning of the Iraq, or maybe ISIS. Like, but that even wasn't comparable. Like when ISIS uh, uh, rose up uh, during the second Obama administration. Um, the uh, was it, uh, the um, so the. Um, uh, it's, uh, Everything, every once in a while, something will flare up. Like Trump will, at the last second, decline to bomb Iran or something, and yeah, then yeah, that'll be the top story. But it's like for twenty-four like, hours, right? Yeah, yeah, but this is the most, the most yeah. uh, lengthy like period thing. of time. Yeah, yeah. I, I, a current thing is like once a five year. Like I consider like George Floyd. And like me too, I think was a current thing. Yeah, I don't think like not bombing Iran. Like it's like twenty four hours, forty eight hours. You know, the, a week maybe a news cycle. Yeah, this is different. This this is in a different category. This is on the category of not nine eleven. Nine eleven dominated the culture, but probably second place to nine eleven. You know, over the last uh, uh, several uh, decades. Um, yeah, and, and so like there's not really much hope that we're going to have rational policy making. Um, because you know the emotions and you know public opinion, and maybe it's not even the public opinion. I mean, I think most people in America, in particular, care more about domestic political issues. I think polls uh, show that. But sort of, you know, the kind of people who are on Twitter and poli- the kind of people politicians are responsive to, this is this is a really big deal to them, and that makes you know negotiations or or even uh, uh, coherent policy difficult. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering what you make of like the con- of the contours of the current sort of range of political uh, support for the what I'm going to roughly call a pro-war position. I know a lot of people will dispute that it is actually a pro-war position because they think that they're anti-war by supporting so-called armed struggle in Ukraine or sending weapons or whatever. I regard what everybody prior to February would have regarded as the pro-war position, which is like your actively facilitating the intensification of warfare that strikes me as a pro-war position but anyway you know let's leave aside whatever semantic objections one might have to that and just go with it for the sake of argument um i uh, the, the the coalescence of consensus to me is uh, is one of the aspects of this that i've been following most closely and as i mentioned i'm in the uk right now and uh, I've try, been trying to cover various aspects of that here because in some ways the UK is even more virulent in their support for the pro-war cause at this point than the US. Um, just today it was, it was announced that Wimbledon is going to be banning Russians from playing tennis in the tournament, right? And, you know, there was a version of that with the Boston Marathon earlier this week. Um, you know, Boris Johnson you know, was the first Western leader to triumphantly descend into Kiev uh, a week or two ago to stride around the downtown corridor with Zelensky for uh, a photo op, um, and uh, there are constantly plans being floated to somehow cajole, you know, f- plans within the UK to cajole the U- US into accepting a more 
proactive uh, military role in Ukraine that goes beyond just mere provision of weapons, right? Um, so uh, I went to a, a left-wing pro-war rally, uh, you know, a week or two ago, and I've talked about this on column before. Um, but uh, you know, there's a there's a segment of the of the left, the activist left, the center left, the center right, and the hardcore right. Um, all of them have their own reasons to be extremely vehement in their support of the pro-war cause, right? And actually, the the Times, the newspaper, unwittingly summed this up over the weekend when they were uh, in an article on the Labor Party slash left's view of Ukraine, right? And they summed up the this, the, the uh, orientation of the leader of the Labor Party. He's supposed to be the leader of the opposition, right? Keir Starmer. And uh, they said with like gratitude, they were praising this on, on the part of Starmer, uh, that his position on Ukraine is, quote, indistinguishable from Boris Johnson's, the conservative prime minister, except that Starmer wants Johnson to go, quote, harder and faster. Um, and Interestingly, it's pretty much the same dynamic in the U.S., but with the Republicans criticizing Biden, who, as I mentioned before, you know, escalates every day in one way or another, they're denouncing him for not being tough, quote-unquote, enough. They still call him an appeaser. I mean, Ted Cruz is basically, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go around reprimanding Biden for somehow emboldening our enemies, including Putin, because he's just not strong enough, whatever that means exactly. Um, so it's like this cross ideological dynamic within the 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 U.S. and the U.K., which you know historically has sort of led the charge on these types of issues, while uh, kind of France and Germany straggle behind. Uh, and it, it's it's unfolding uh, right now. So uh, what what do you what's your sort of distillation into a nutshell synopsis of like how this of like the the nature of this consensus? Yeah, I mean, the American politics on foreign policy is interesting because you look at every measure of sort of polarization on most things. Uh, the parties are going further and further apart on the, uh, in the U.S. They like each other less. I mean, the, they vote different in Congress. They have sort of different, you know, fundamental values. They're, they appoint different judges and different kinds of personnel. Every, like, piece of data you can look at for American politics uh, in the last, uh, say, 30, 40 years is basically the trend of greater polarization. Uh, foreign policy is unique. I mean, and it's the one place where really Americans are united. Um, I want to say it's just elites, but it's it's not just elites because you look at like polling and, you know, the it, it's it, there's not, you know, that big of a difference either. And it can switch very fast. You know, people just don't have uh, strong views one way or the one way or the other. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is this is what makes, you know, the policy. This is why you can sort of go in crazy directions, because there's usually a backlash if Republicans go in one way and Democrats want to go in the other uh, or vice versa. Um, you know, you, you have that. I mean, this is why Trump has sort of drove them crazy. And he's was such a, you know, uh, sort of I think, you know. Like, if you look at his, Trump's ideology and, like, how he behaved politically, he really was a typical Republican in almost um, everything. Not, like, in his behavior, but, like, in his policy. Nothing he really did on domestic policy, or not most of the things he said, were all that different from what Ted, Cru Ted Cruz or Jeb Bush, you know, would have done. You know, yeah, he said stuff, like, during the primary. is like, oh, you know, I would raise taxes on the rich. Uh, but, like, you know, that's a Democratic position. And plus, he didn't 
do that. Obviously, he did. He did the opposite. Uh, so Trump was really, you know, and his policy wise was really just a, um, a completely typical uh, Republican. And then when he wasn't, uh, he was more like a Democrat. Right. Um, but like, you know, the foreign policy was one of the one place where his instincts were just completely outside of the, uh, you know, the bipartisan sort of spectrum. Right. You know, he wanted at the end, he wanted to pull out of Germany. He wanted to complete the Afghanistan withdrawal and he wanted to pull out of Germany. And, you know, they sort of like they did on a lot of things. They ran out the they ran out the clock on him. Um, and so, you know, I mean, and sometimes it was the opposite direction. Like sometimes like there's reports he wanted to like, you know, uh, he wanted to kill Assad at one point and like, you have to, you know, who knows whether this is true or not. Well, but, but on, 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 on Ukraine, he actually, he, he basically uh, did yes. the bidding of John McCain. Yeah, well, it's so no, nothing, yeah. he, nothing that he did on Ukraine actually is indicative of those it's funny. heterodox yeah. instincts. Maybe he does like deep down have those instincts, right? But none of it manifested in policy vis-a-vis Ukraine. Yeah, and it's funny. Yeah, I think if you if you are Bill Crystal or you are like one of these like crazy people, I think you you might you you know there's a case for actually liking Trump because he sort of does what you want. I think a lot of these people are driven by sort of you know they want people to say the right words and it's emotions. I think emotions and like are like a huge part of politics. So the fact that he you know does the policy that they want but at the same time like says nice things about you know putin and you know says we should get along with russia uh you know i think a lot of them didn't like that but you're, you're right i think trump's instincts would have been completely different um and you know you, uh, there's a reason for that i mean when he you know when he tried to hold up the uh they impeached him when he tried to hold up the uh uh the eight uh, uh ukraine right um so you know this uh, and trump, trump he presided over two rounds of nato expansion meaning he personally signed off on two rounds of nato expansion yet there was small countries, but still, Russia yeah. still, you know, uh, uh, aggressively opposed that. Um, he exa- he elevated Ukraine into this enhanced partnership status within NATO, which is like the precursor to full membership. Um, he extracted commitments from other NATO member states to increase the funding of NATO, and yet the dominant like think tank, neocon, center-left, center, even center-right narrative is that Trump is this like uh, diehard ideological foe of NATO, and I just saw a scare piece published yesterday in the New Republic warning that if he wins again in 2024, he's going to abolish NATO. I mean, what is- <laughs> Well, Don't we have four fear, years of evidence is, to actually see what he did on, on a policy level yeah. to, to know that well, like, you don't have to, have to extrapolate to wildly based on some quip that he makes in an interview? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, the, well, the fear is, I mean, I think that it's not just quip because if you read like sort of you read John Bolton's like memoirs and you look at like it's clear that Trump does have like. He does hate NATO. Like he does. He does keep talking about it. It's not like a small thing. Um, but you know, he did it. He, he appointed John Bolton and people like that. I mean, he wasn't you know following through on policy. So I think their worry is not like crazy because they're thinking, okay, if Trump is president again, but he actually gets to do what he wants, like you know, they exercised enough supervision last time where he where he couldn't, and had to end up basically with John McCain and Lindsey Graham's policy. Uh, you know, the the worry is that he could actually do what he wants, and then you could have something radical happen, whether that's realistic or not based on who Trump is, um, you know, we'll, uh, we'll see. Um, but yeah, I mean, the larger point is, yeah, he, he was sort of, you know, just at least rhetorically and what he might do, you know, that was the, that was the, that was the, the fear um, rhetorically and what he might do and what his instinct, what his instincts people saw as, um, you know, that that was a threat to sort of, you know, what, what the bipartisan consensus was, uh, but it just, but, like it made, it made him an outlier because the, you know, the normal, uh, you know, there's no really, there's no real Republican talking about not arming, uh, uh, not arming Ukraine or taking a step back, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's, maybe Tom Massey or, or somebody who's, you know, obscure has said something. Uh, same thing on the left. I think maybe Ilhan Omar uh, has said something about, you know, being careful about sending weapons. You know, Obama actually, um, 
uh, you know, was resisted, like he resisted the um, uh, going even more all in on Syria, resisted some of the, you know, the desires to send in more uh, lethal aid. And Biden is, you know, to the Biden is to, you know, more hawkish than Obama here, just as Trump is more hawkish. Uh, but for the most part, you know, like the leaders on both sides, you have McConnell uh, on foreign policy on the Democratic sides, like people like Bob Menendez are like the most prominent and they're you know they're war hawks uh so you know they, this is one place where the parties you know there's not so well menendez and graham were just in taiwan a few days ago so that's that's really hopeful yeah graham and Men- menendez right yeah i said they were they were a traveling roadshow of like you know international provocation i mean it's really it's really crazy like why you would be doing this but you know <laughs> it's what they do and even the president you have to feel sorry for the president sometimes because he has to deal with these lunatics and he has to deal with the media right so i think even if biden wanted to do a reasonable policy i'm not saying that he does. Um, the most prominent f- foreign policy people that the media is going to put out there are Lindsey Graham and Bob Menendez, and they're going to, you know, they're going to sabotage uh, uh, one towards peace. He wants to do. Yeah. So, uh, so, so, question to you, uh, Richard. Like, how do you um, how do you accumulate information about the war? I mean, how do you, what's your news slash information diet that enables you to not maybe fall fall victim to some of these phony narratives um do you are you like me where you're scrolling wildly through crazy telegram channels all day or like what's your what's your remedy yeah pretty much i mean i read you know the updates of new york times washington post has updates throughout the day um you know cnn also has you know updates throughout the day um you know you you take it with a grain of salt we've talked about the whole time like you know the, the advantages and disadvantages of following these uh these sources uh twitter is pretty much you know useless some some people they have good you know threads uh there's a guy named uh i just retweeted him let me see what his uh name is his uh uh well i forget but uh yeah there's a guy who's works for um uh for actually fdd of all things foundation for defense of democracies people can check my thread i've tweeted him like recently um and uh, so, you know, he, he's pretty good. Uh, Bill, Bill Rogio, R-O-G-G-I-O. Uh, that's, uh, he has some good, th- good threads on this. Um, you know, there's other people like, uh, the, you know, I see things on Twitter like the, uh, I, w- I probably would have flown under my radar the, uh, the extent of sort of the, ref- uh, the number of refugees that are leaving. Um, Alex Narachish, you know, uh, pub- uh, updates that, you know, daily pretty much. Um, and then, you know, you have to seek out the Russian, um, you have to seek out the Russian side because a lot of the media, what you're getting is the Ukrainian side. Uh, so there's a, if you just want like, you know, the pure, you know, uh, uh, you know, my, uh, on Twitter, by the way, yeah, my, uh, uh, Russians with attitude, I follow their podcast and they're, you know, they were suspended on Twitter, but now they're back. And then they also have a telegram channel, um, that's for the Russian side. Uh, there's something called Intel Slava. Um, that's also the Russian side. Uh, there's, um, uh, people might remember there's something called ASB military news. It used to be pretty big on Twitter. Also a pro Russian account. It's still on telegram, the Russian ministry, uh, ministry of foreign affairs, uh, Russia, Russia today. I don't, is Russia today even still on Twitter? It must've gotten kicked out. Right. Or it's like behind some kind of, a uh, some kind of, you know, warning, uh, uh, you know, some kind of warning, uh, pop up. No, I, I think it's, I think it's not even there. I think it's actually been, uh, uh, kicked out. No, it's still there. It's still there. You just don't see it. The, the algorithm, uh, sort of, you know, uh, uh, de-emphasizes it, and then once you, if you try to link to it, it says, "Be aware, 
you know, this is a Russian propaganda source. And then you have to click through to get to it. So I won't even show you like the thumbnail uh, of it. So, but yeah, you could, you have to seek it out. Right. So if you, if you just follow Russia today, like, like I apparently do, I forgot I did because I haven't seen anything from it in, you know, since the war started because, you know, it's, it's, it's an algorithm. is just like, I, it's not something I need to see. Um, you have to, you have to sort of find the feed yourself. Um, so yeah, I think that those are the, um, uh, I think, yeah, I think you take a dose of, you know, the newspapers are generally good on the factual matters. You can read the Times, Washington Post, Washington, Wall Street Journal. You, you know, when they're speculating on Putin's motives, you don't have to take that seriously. But basic facts, you know, I, I think you can, you can trust them on that. Um, you know, some few Twitter accounts. And then, uh, uh, yeah, the, you know, sometimes you learn things that are just, it's not like somebody's telling you something, but you learn it from looking at different propaganda sources. Like, so like the pro-Russian accounts, they will have these uh, videos of these Ukrainians who surrendered. And sometimes there'll be, you know, hundreds of them, right? Um, they'll, you know, they'll have, they'll have them. And then like, you look at the pro-Ukrainian side and they never have, you know, hundreds of, you know, Russian soldiers surrendering, right? They'll have like one dead person or like a few, uh, or a few prisoners of war, a small handful. And then you're like, okay, like the Russians, you know, supposedly have like these big losses and nobody's talking about the Ukrainian losses, but then only the Russian side has like videos that have hundreds of, you know, prisoners of war. And you never see that on the Ukrainian side. You put two and two together and you'd be like, wow, you know, there must be, you know, there must be the Ukrainian, you know, losses must be uh, really getting downplayed here. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's ways to stay informed and there's ways to look for clues, but it's it's difficult. This is probably one of the hardest things uh, that the, that you could follow. Just It's called the fog of war, you know, for a reason. Well, yeah, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I chose to personally go not into Ukraine, where I didn't think it was going to be that fruitful where I should do so, but to, to Poland to, as best I could, sort of ascertain certain details here and there about the nature of the U.S. proxy war and how it was working mechanically and trying to talk to the different, you know, military personnel and profiteers and others who have flooded into the area and yeah, so it gave me like a, maybe a little bit of a window uh, that where I could judge things for myself firsthand. But uh, yeah, there's a, obviously a huge expanse of information to be gleaned about this. And uh, this is why I try to operate with a healthy dose of humility and not just like take at face value some of these weird conjectures and speculative uh, analyses that seem to be the bread and butter of of the media. Oh, one last thing, and then we'll take a couple of of uh, questions. Um, sorry. Uh, uh, what, what, what's your so Russia is apparently on the verge of completely seizing Mariupol. Um, if you look at these telegram channels and such, you know there's just a small, relatively small and dwindling segment of the most like hardcore Azov uh, fighters in the steel factory. Um, and Russia apparently gave them an opportunity to surrender, and it was. Either refused uh, at the direction of Zelensky, or maybe they themselves, meaning the fighters, are just refusing on their own, some or some combination. Um, but you know, <laughs> I, I do think that like this whole denazification pretense of that has been cited by Russia as a justification for the war, because it seems to me overstated, because it gives the impression that anybody taking up arms on behalf of Ukraine is themselves a Nazi or they harbor Nazi sympathetic views, right? At the same time. In Mariupol, where we're all supposed to be rooting for the miraculous, come from behind victory of the of Ukraine, 
these actually are the hardcore ideological Azov fighters, right? Who, <laughs> if anybody has these views, meaning the Nazi or Nazi sympathetic views, it's going to be these guys. And yet, uh, you know, they're just kind of quoted as, you know, for their, their factual updates in the media. Um, and m- most of the time, when the when the uh, when journalists are reporting on the status of the warfare in Mariupol, they don't mention that these are the you know the, the most less hardcore uh, faction of, of Azov fighters that have these views, which if they existed in the U.S. would cause a, a meltdown, and we would be all the uh, supposed to be to- be running around with our hair on fire about Nazis like taking over the range of state or something. Um, so, just wondering what you make of that dynamic. Yeah, uh, you're you're right. I mean, I think that one of the things about the you know American foreign policy is often the most committed fighters are like you know really far right wing guys, right? So like, I, I don't think the U.S. wanted Assad to be overthrown by Al Qaeda types or ISIS types. But you know what? You know, you sent the weapons in, in there, and you sort of had a free for all. And those were the you know the they rather than the liberal Democrats were the ones who were recruited the most people and were the most uh, effective. I think it's the same thing with Ukraine. I mean, I think you've seen this is a country that has had you know trouble building state institutions and a military, um, and then these so you had these like far right wing forces uh, that ended up you know being incorporated and working alongside. Uh, the state, and sometimes with actual leverage and, and power over the, over the state. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you have to think just like, sort of like, you know, like this media that sees Nazis everywhere and, you know, at home, like, you know, they, you know, they'll say like some people, you know, consider them, you know, it's like they're interested in, they suddenly become interested in nuance uh, as far as people who are white nationalists and people who are, you know, <laughs> and all these uh, Imagine if, like, the Charlottesville protesters requested nuance in their depictions. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. How many called themselves Nazis? Probably not that many, but, like, you know, we didn't care. You know, it was just, oh, they were fascists. They were, you know, whatever. Nazis, fascists, white supremacists. All the the same thing. Um, Well, you often hear that, like, every Republican is a Nazi or a fascist. I mean, they don't even have to be the Charlottesville types. It's just (laughs) that they're abetting this resurgence of white nationalists or something, and therefore they're at least, if, if not Nazis themselves, Nazi abettors. Yeah, I mean, all of society is, you know, a white supremacist society, right? So I guess, I guess right. maybe the Nassau is not that bad. It's just a spectrum. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like just like everything. It's just a typical Western organization, I, I guess. Um, but you have to understand how, like, you know, if you're, if you, if you're pro-Russian, you know, or you're, you know, you have the right, you have to understand how scary these people must be to you. I mean, you're, for the people in the, in the East, I mean, they, uh, you know, they, a lot of them do have loyalties to Russia and, you know, you, you know, that's, you know, to Russia was, you know, lost tens of millions of people to, to the Nazis, you know, uh, just a couple generations ago. Um, and, you know, you, you, I think we should be able to have a little bit of sympathy for sort of some of the support that Russia does have in Ukraine. And it does have, it does have some support unquestionably uh, in the East. Um, but no, you know that that's inconvenient for the narrative. So we mentioned we mentioned it. I mean, we mentioned Azov is is far right. We don't go into details and talk about you know the the you know the uh, specifics of their crime or like you know take seriously sort of the people who might oppose them. Um, but yeah, this is this is this is just one small part of the narrative construction. I mean, you could do you could talk about this stuff all day. There's just so many aspects to it. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, I saw just today there was a report that. Michael, I can't hear you. Oh, sorry. There you go. Uh, I just saw a report today that um, 
Russian forces had just installed a flag over some administrative building in Kherson. I'm probably mispronouncing that. K-E-R-S-O-N, the city um, in Ukraine. That and the flag was originally flown when the Soviet army seized some territory in uh, Germany, I believe, in, in 1945. So the, this mythology of World War II was really more integral than maybe I previously would have appreciated in fashioning the, the public consciousness, seemingly, of Russia around the, their view of the righteousness of the war, hence the emphasis on, you know, Nazism and so on and so forth. Um, you know, a lot of, you know, in, in America, we grew up with the, this mythology, mythologization of, of World War II. Yeah, Michael, you still there? Oh, I don't know. I keep, I keep, sorry, I keep mistakenly pressing the uh, mute button. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, like, this, this, this mythology uh, of um, Dinos. You did it. You did it again. Huh. I don't know why that's happening. Um, all right. Let's go to a, let's just go to a caller. Otherwise, I'm going to keep glitching on my mute button. Um, and we'll just do, like, a, a couple minutes of this. Um, all right. Um All right, uh, I apologize, people, but I think my uh, app is glitching somewhat, so it's not allowing me to take callers, unfortunately. Um, and maybe we'll do this again uh, in the not too distant future and be able to take callers, so I, I apologize. Okay, you're, you're, uh, you're muted. Again, okay, Mike. yeah, my, my app is glitching, everybody, and it's not letting me take callers, and it's not letting me stay unmuted. So I'm just going to uh, end the, uh, the room now. Muted again. <laughs> my, my app is glitching, everyone, so I'm, we're just going to end the room. So I can't okay, take later, callers Mike. for thanks whatever everyone. reason. And uh, thanks, everybody. We'll do it again and hopefully be able to take some callers. All right, bye-bye.